take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 6. I understand from many of our college students that this is now crunch time and there are tests galore. Since we're preaching a series on prayer through the course of the summer, we might as well start off right. So here's a prayer for you who are college students suffering through finals and high school students coming up. Oh Lord, hear my anxious plea. Calculus is killing me. I know not of DX or DY and probably won't until the day I die. Please, Lord, help me in this hour as I take my case to the highest power. I care not for fame or loot, just help me find one square root. Now I lay me down to study. I pray the Lord I won't go nutty. If I should fail to learn this junk, I pray the Lord I will not flunk. And now I lay me down to rest, and I pray I'll pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I have to take. (laughs) Amen. Truth is where you find it, right? Well, we're studying through prayer. And uh, through the years, I've grown to appreciate the words of little children. Because little children have a way of stating what everybody tends to think. But as adults... We get refined so that we're careful how we say what we think. With kids, you just get what it is. So let me give you a few examples of sentence prayers that have been offered by some young children, and I'll tie them into a particular category of prayer, all right? One of them is the selfish category. Most of us are excellent at this kind of prayer. Here's what Debbie, who was age seven, had to say. Dear God, please send a new baby for mommy. That new baby you sent last week cries way too much. (laughs) David, who is also seven on the selfish side of things, prayed this. Dear God, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my dad for me? Thank you, he says. Then we have the uh, prayer that comes from that individual who has a really high level of need to know. You know what I'm talking about? I, I need, you know, you get in the car and one of your kids says, where are we going? It doesn't matter. Just get in the car. But where are we going to go? It doesn't matter. Get in the car. I need to know where we're going. All right, that's the kind of prayer this is. Jimmy, age six. Dear God, who did you make smarter, boys or girls? My sister and I want to know. Norma, who was age eight, said, how many angels are there in heaven? I sure would like to be the first one in my class to know the answer to that. And then there's the one that's just eaten up with pride. Angela, age eight, prayed, Dear God, this is my prayer. Could you give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. And then the last one, this is where I think we find most adults. It is the humanistic prayer. Dear God, please help me in school. I need help in spelling and adding and history, and geography, and writing. I don't need help in anything else, just those. All right, so I want you to be thinking about your prayer life. Do you find yourself in any of those categories much of the time? The selfish prayer, the need-to-know prayer, the haughty prayer, 
look at your Bibles with me. Matthew chapter 6. Now, we've been talking towards this for quite some time. Today, we come to begin our look at what some people call the Lord's Prayer and others call the Model Prayer. Some people call it the Disciples' Prayer. Jesus is teaching his disciples about how to get right prayer. So let's read this passage. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 9. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, for the one that we recite all the time, what's left off of that? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here's your homework assignment. Figure out why it's not here, but we say it that way. All right? So, but let's move on. That's a total digression there. All right, here's what I want us to look at today. When I was in high school, I was a member of a particular organization that for a good portion of the year, on a almost weekly basis, would go out into the public arena and do something, perform if you want to call it that, uh, and the public at large would see that. Now, this organization that I was in had all kinds of people on all kinds of fences, all right? Uh, we had some who were Christian, many who were not Christian, some of us who were Christian who didn't live like we were Christians. We just had all kinds of people in there. But it was the practice of that organization, every time before going out into the public arena, everybody would stop and recite the Lord's Prayer together. I didn't understand it then, I don't understand it now. But I've seen that in places since then. A group, you know, last 20 years down in deep south Texas. And, and this thing called the Lord's Prayer, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to refer to it as the model prayer. Uh, it, it just kind of surfaces when it seems like there needs to be something religious done. It seems like an acceptable religious thing to do to recite the Lord's Prayer. Now, I find it interesting that the very thing that Jesus is teaching against in this passage we find ourselves defaulting to. No vain repetition, no empty re reciting of stuff that really doesn't have any meaning to us. And most of my experience, it, I don't want to be too judgmental here, but it just seems like most of the time that I've heard this thing used, it, it's almost like it's one of those genie bottles, you know. And we'll rub it by reciting the prayer and our thinking is that God will somehow pop out of nowhere and grant us three wishes. I want us to come back today, and remember, we're still way on the early side of this series, but I want us to come back today and ask the pointed question. You saw it on the title screen for this. What is the point of prayer? Why do we do this in the first place? And now I'm beyond just this reciting this one little piece of Scripture. I'm talking about prayer in general why do we do it? Now, I know the Sunday school answer to that, but I'm interested in us kind of really digging our feet in a little bit this morning because my basic premise is this, that many of us, and I'll throw myself into the mix here, that many of us have taken what is God's, well, I'll be careful how I say this, one of God's greatest gifts 
because of Jesus, we've taken prayer and we've reduced it down to just another religious exercise. So why do we do it? And how do we move to a healthy point of perspective on this? First, it's maybe good for us to start off by being really honest about how outsiders view prayer. And when I say outsiders, I'm talking about people who are probably not going to be in a church service anywhere today. These are the people who are going through their life and, you know, kind of basically have no use for God. If they even believe in him at all, you know, they're not too sure. Hold him at arm's length. Hold Christian people at arm's length. And, and those people have a perspective on us. Here's what one said. I don't recommend this guy at all to you, but it helps us to hear what he's saying. Immanuel Kant said this. He, he refers to prayer as a psychological exercise. Here's a quote. It is an interior conversation with yourself, supposing yourself to be conversing very intelligently with God. You hear what he just said? Essentially, what he says is that prayer is just you talking to yourself. It's self-talk. And you hold yourself to be very intelligent in the process. That make you just a little mad? Well, it kind of gets to me a little bit. And then if that's not enough, he goes on to say, prayer is a superstitious error. Here's another guy. Here's what he says, kind of along the same lines. He said, in prayer, man adores his own heart, contemplates his own sentiment as a divine being. So prayer duplicates the self in a dialogue with the self. What both of those guys are saying captures what many people outside of the church say, and that is when you pray, there's really nothing to it because all you're really doing is talking to yourself. But because you do that, the psychological exercise of it, they say, makes you feel better. Let me uh, just stop for a second. And I'll throw this quote on you. You'll hear it a lot, I'm sure. But try it on. They're arguing against Christianity and against prayer. So here's something that you should remember. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. If you have a vibrant prayer life, it doesn't matter if the smartest man who ever lived, that's your father-in-law, by the way, It doesn't matter if the smartest man who ever lived argues a wonderfully put-together argument. If you can commune with God in prayer, you know the truth. But you see, that's the problem with so many Christian people, I think. Is they haven't had that deep sense of communion with God that comes through prayer. Because for many people, many of whom are Christian, and I would even say that churches across America are full today of Christian people who take prayer and it is nothing more than a psychological exercise for them. Unless, of course, it becomes a cosmic cure-all for them. What do you do when you're down and out and you're at the end of your rope? Well, you pray. But why? 
And the answer to that, I think, if you just boil it all down, ultimately comes down to an answer that says, well, I do that because I need God to come through for me. Well, you know what? I've been down there. That's a good prayer. (laughs) When you're down in the bottom and you're wanting out, that's a good prayer. But if that's the only prayer you know, then you're missing. See, Satan is the great counterfeiter. He's the great deceiver. He's a great counterfeiter. And he takes what God offers to us in prayer as one of God's choicest gifts to us. And he helps us to reduce that down to a manageable, uh, easy for me to say, ridiculous and religious exercise. Have you heard this saying? Prayer changes things. Well, I'm going to take issue with that. Okay? Um, I had a professor who used to call that kind of stuff uh, folk religion. Sounds good. Looks great on a bumper sticker. But there's something inherently wrong with that. Let's stop and think about it for just a second. Prayer changes things. What's responsible or who's responsible for the change there? See, here's my problem with it. If, if we say that, what happens if we don't pray? Does that mean that God doesn't do anything? But you see, that's wrapped up in that. And so somebody figured that out. And so then the, the statement was changed because it kind of went through its little life in church circles. Uh, and so somebody changed it and said, well, you know, that's not exactly right. Prayer changes people. And people change things. Okay, so my question is, where's God in that, really? The the dangerous element in that is that just under the surface of that set of statements is a belief that says, it's up to me to get God busy. Let's take a typical scenario. Something happens. You go through some kind of a situation that for some reason, whatever the parameters are in your thinking and however you put all of stuff together, this situation comes to you and it's a negative kind of a situation. You tag it as negative. And so what do you do with that? Well, the typical Christian approach is that you do what you can to fix it. And then when you don't fix it, then you say, well, maybe I should pray about this. And so you take it to God and you leave it there and say, God, I need you to take care of this for me. But what's wrapped up in all of that is a basic approach that says, God, I know what's best here. And so I'm here knocking on your door, rubbing the lamp so that you'll do what needs to be done here. Prayer changes things. But what if you don't pray? You know what I figured out? If you don't pray, it's going to change. Things are going to change. That is the nature of this world. Now, they may not change the way you want them to change, but they'll change. I'm afraid that what we've done is we... we, we, Man, maybe I should just pray and go. I can't get these words out. We reduce... God's choicest gift to just another religious exercise. And usually it's tied to this concept that says, I know best, 
So I'm going to get God in on this to do what's best. Uh, The problem with that is, I'm not God. I'm not even smart enough to know what's best. You know, sometimes we pray about stuff. And we pray for ourselves or for somebody else. God, take this horrible thing away from them. Is it ever enter your mind that maybe God allowed that, quote, horrible thing into that situation as a way of bringing that individual closer to a relationship with him? And if it works to that end, is it really that horrible in the end? We're back to this thing about idolatry, and that is that I'm going to worship me because I'm really the one who needs to get things happening here. Now, sure, God can do things that I can't do, but I need to get him working for me. So prayer changes things. The question that I have for us then is, is that in line with what Jesus teaches us about prayer? If that's how we tend to pray then is that acceptable as what Jesus has done? So let's go back to the model prayer. Now, one of the things that you're going to find as we work our way through this, there are two overarching themes of the entire model prayer. One of them is God is sovereign. You understand the term sovereign? God is in charge. The other theme is I'm not. (laughs) Okay? You can boil it down to that. And if you only grasp that it'll turn your prayer life upside down. God is sovereign and I'm not. He doesn't need me to inform him of stuff as if it's his first time. You know, like I told you before, I think a friend of mine said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He knows omniscient. So that has to impact us as we come to him in prayer. So back to the Sermon on the Mount, back to the teaching on the model prayer. Here's, let's just begin now to settle in to some of what Jesus is saying. So let's look at verse 9, just the first part of it. And it says there, pray then like this, Our Father, okay, let's just stop because we're not going to get any further than that today. Does the word Father, I'm even going to leave our off for today. Let's just talk about Father. Does That reality, captured in that word as it relates to prayer, does that inform your prayer life? Now, we should know that part of what happens here is that Jesus takes a huge point of difference with established Jewish religious belief at this point. All through the Old Testament, you can look and you can find that what we find Jesus doing here is taking a word and applying it to God that was very far removed from the way the typical Jew thought. If you look in the Old Testament, there are two primary names for God that are used. One of them is Elohim. That's the name of creation. Of, of the God of, who created, okay? And so in those parts of Genesis, we see this word Elohim that's used, all right? And it points us to this perspective that the Jews had of God as the transcendent God, as the one who is powerful, who spoke the words, and all of the world, the universe, came into order. This is the God who is far removed from his creation. Not that he's not involved with his creation, it's just that we are so under him 
that he's so removed from us that there's very little point of contact for us. The other name for God, and this is one we find most of the time in the Old Testament, is the name Yahweh. This is the name of the covenant God, the one who reaches down to Abraham, pulls him to himself, I'm going to make a people out of you. And Moses and the wandering in the wilderness and all of that, all through the Old Testament, the name Yahweh is the covenant God. Now that sounds like relationship. But the deal is for them in their mind, he was so far removed from them, so holy was he, that they wouldn't even utter his name for fear that they would offend him somehow. That is a long way from Father. And they would have done their prayers through the Old Testament and used the Levitical system and all of that in the Holy of Holies in that one time a year. But that captures for us their perspective. This is a God who is so far beyond us, so powerful, so overwhelming to us that we're afraid if we even utter his name wrong that he'll strike us down. And so their prayers reflected that. And it becomes a very mechanical approach to doing things. So Jesus comes in first, rattle out of the box, and he says, call him Father. This is a long way different from that psychological exercise. You know, some people think that prayer is just kind of a placebo that you take. You know what placebo is? It's a, basically a sugar pill. They use it in chemical studies and pharmaceutical studies and that kind of thing. They give one group a real piece of medicine and another group just a sugar pill and a placebo. And then they measure the results. And some people take the placebo and they convince themselves that it's the real thing and they feel better. I've, I'm cured. It's a miracle. Just sugar. And that's prayer for some people. But doesn't always drill with us. Matter of fact, the problem with a mechanical, placebo kind of religion is when you get right down to it, it leaves you wanting more. (laughs) But not what Jesus promotes here. Father. I had the occasion this week to appreciate some of this a little bit more maybe than usual. I had several phone calls with family members this week. And one of them was actually with my mother. And I'd gotten a couple of emails from her that concerned me about some things going on with her health. And so I decided, well, you know, it's been nine months since I talked to her. I probably should call her. Not quite nine months, but been a while. And so I called her and I said, Mom, what's going on? And so she began to talk to me. Now, you know what I liked about that conversation? First of all, it's, you know, the health situations, is, you know, they're dealing with it. But what I liked about the conversation is what I always like about a conversation with my mom. And that is, I don't have to call her. And when she picks up the phone, I don't have to say, hello, this is Mark Rotrammel with Crestwood Baptist Church. And, I, you know, I just calling. I don't have to do that with her. You know why? Because I have a relationship with her. And she knows my voice. And she can tell when I pick up the phone and talk to her, something's going on with me. She can say, and she does regularly, what's the matter with you? And I always tell her, it's because you hit me in the head when I was a kid and I'm just not right. You know that, Mom. But I like the fact, matter of fact, I cherish the fact that I can call my mother 
or sit in a room with her and we can commune with one another in our discussion. Make sense? So I had another conversation this week with one of my kids. And I get them on the phone and I start talking to them. And, or whether it's in person or whatever it happens to be. And in those conversations, there's just something there that goes beyond the mechanical stuff like I would talk to a clerk at a store somewhere. When I go to Sonic, can I say that from up here? Okay, I'm not like endorsing their stock or anything like that. But I go to Sonic occasionally and when I talk to, I don't tell them what's going on with my health. You know why? They don't care. When I talk to my wife, we have discussions. When I talk to Lauren, I tell her regularly, get out of my house. Please get out of my house. No, I don't tell her that. It's just the opposite. I always love it when Lauren comes home because I'm her father. That makes sense? This coming Saturday, after we do our apartment ministry here in town, Teresa and I, we're going to load up and we're going to drive to Huntsville. We're going to see my mom because next Sunday is Mother's Day. Oh, by the way, seven shopping days, guys. There's my public service announcement for you. Because Sunday's Mother's Day and I'm going to be here. Then Saturday, we're going to go up and see my mom for Mother's Day. And I know that I'm going to pull into the driveway and she's going to get up and walk outside with a smile on her face. You know why? Because she's glad to see us. All of that is wrapped up in this word, Father. Jesus comes and he puts a whole new twist on this relationship with God. The children of Israel are so used to a mechanical, separated, fear-driven, or then it became kind of a monotony for them, mechanical religious exercise. Before we go any further... In the Sermon on the Mount, in the model prayer, we can't miss what Jesus is drawing from here. As a matter of fact, grammatically, and you take this, this whole model prayer and you spread it out the way it's written, this word Father controls everything else in the prayer. It stands here and everything else comes off of it. But you see what that does to us is when we miss God as Father, then everything else that follows in our prayer life is in danger of being out of line. As I said, we're going to find those two themes through this. God is sovereign, but he's not a sovereign ruler who rules from afar, whacking people in the head with a Bible. He is sovereign and yet he reaches across the divide and he pulls us to himself and he says, I love you. And then we're always in danger of taking that high-priced relationship and reducing it down to, oh, the preacher said I'm supposed to pray today, so... God is great, God is good, let us thank you for this food. Amen! And then on to our stuff. How much do you think God wants us as his children to just spend time with him? You know, I think our our day is a dangerous day for us all. 
Because we are so programming our schedules in our lives that we don't have time for each other who we see every day, much less for God who sometimes seems very far away. And so he screams through the ages and across time and through space to us, I love you. Let's spend time together. I love Lauren coming home and spending time talking to her. But let me tell you, if when she came home every time, all she did was ask me for stuff, I'd get tired of her hanging out. She didn't do that. Which makes me really willing to give her stuff because she didn't ask. See, only a father thinks like that, or a mother. But when you're on the receiving end of stuff, it's easy to say, hey, you know what? Ah, see, I picked on boats last time. Let's pick on something the ladies like. I don't know what ladies like. Who am I kidding here? So never mind. Um, (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? We substitute. And I think it sometimes breaks the heart of God. Sometimes our prayers become tests of will. This is one of those roles of father. You know, I was thinking this week, I was processing through this message. I started to just look at different roles that a father has and how that reflects God in our relationship. I'll, I'll just give you this one. Um, sometimes, as a father, we're called to uh, draw a line and say, if you come across this line, there's bad trouble for you. And I think God does that with us sometimes. Because we're so strong-willed. We like it the way we have it. Our, one of the reasons that we opt for this kind of uh, religious exercise approach to prayer is because it's manageable for us. We, we can be God and we can control that little area of our lives. And so that's what we do. And sometimes I think God says, you know what, uh, it's time for us to deal with that a little bit. I go back to a situation, actually this was Teresa and our oldest son when he was a little kid. We went to see my parents and mom had this coffee table, still has it, and she had these silver looking swans that were just, you know, some of those things that are like decor or something. Uh, I never really understood the whole point of all of that, but uh, sitting out and you have to dust around it and all that kind of stuff. And so sitting out on the table, well, um, so my son who was a you know, just kind of a toddler at that time, very strong-willed little boy he was. And uh, so he came over to that, and he reached up to it, and he reached out to grab it, and Teresa said, no. And Brandon looked up at her. seemed like he smiled. I don't remember. He did smile, right? He looked up at her and smiled and grabbed it. And Teresa popped him on the hand, and she said, no. I said, no. And so he kind of clouded up a little bit and he backed off and he came circling back around to it, reached up to it, started grabbing it again. And she said, Brandon, I said no. And what do you think he did? He smiled and grabbed it and she popped him again. (laughs) And he clouded up more this time and he kind of went back and just a little bit, he came back to it. And on a repeated basis, he keeps coming back and reaching, even though he knows there's pain involved. Tell me that's not us with God in prayer. God, I need this. And God says, it's not good for you. I'm telling you what. 
I need this guy or this girl in my life. And God says, I'm telling you what, you don't need that. It's going to hurt you. Don't do that. And we insist on our way. And so the father says, I do love you. And I love you enough to drop a little bit of consequence on you. And so then we start dealing with consequence. And then we start trying to pray God off of the consequence for us. You see how we try to be God? And our Father says, if you'll trust me, I'll give you a life that will blow your mind. That's John chapter 10, verse 10. But you've got to let me be Father to you. So what do you do with all of this? Father God, He is God. We cannot forget that. We must not forget that. And we have to have that so firmly entrenched in us that it trickles down and transforms how we pray. I love this short prayer given by Bobby Richardson, who was the second baseman for the New York Yankees for a long time. Years ago, he was speaking at a Fellowship for Christian Athletes event And they asked him after he finished the speech to pray. Here's what he said. Listen to this for the sovereignty of God awareness that he had. Dear God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Let me tell you something. That's the most mature prayer I've ever heard. Because it takes my agenda, sets it to the side... And it says, Father, I trust you enough to do what you want, not what I want. Let me tell you something. That will turn your prayer life upside down if you can get there. So what do you do with all of this? I've been interesting, uh, it's been interesting to me to listen to the responses that I've had from many of our church folks Uh, based on the little exercise I gave a couple of weeks ago, to go one day without asking God for anything. How's that going for you? Um, It's been interesting to me to listen to people. And uh, some of you are going, so I'm not supposed to ask for anything? I said, no, that's not what I said. I said, just try one day not asking for anything. So here's your next challenging assignment. Go one week. Wait a minute, preacher. What, let's go back to the one day thing. You don't even know what I'm going to say yet. Go one week asking God to develop your love for him and trust for him to the point that you can pray your will, not mine. That's a prayer that you can pray only if you know him to be Father. Because you know that ultimately he's only going to do what's best for you. Lots of scripture supports that. There's your challenge. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we come now, we recognize that these kind of messages can be very uh, aggressive and even maybe offensive. Lord, you know my heart.
And so I just trust you through the work of your spirit, even this second as you're working with hearts out there to interpret the intent. Lord, we have played at religion for so long. Even in very intellectual ways and very advanced degree kind of ways. And we know the nuances and the all the little elements and we're very comfortable with the God that we have created. And then you drop one word on us and it blows our whole system out of the water. Father. Father, give us a week that allows us to explore the depth of that one word. And then give us the grace we need to change and the courage to reorganize and rethink. Lord, we just need so many things. It draws us back to that first beatitude where we started this whole discussion. We are so spiritually bankrupt that we cannot do this on our own. And so we plead for your help, knowing full well that your love drives you to us in these times. And even now, Lord, I know that in a room like this with this many people, somebody desperately needs to hear your voice. So those who don't know you, Father, I pray right now that you would impress upon them their need for the Savior who is Jesus Christ. That you would give them new life that would take them beyond the ho-hum Christianity religious approach that is so evident in our time. Teach them, draw them, save them by the blood of Jesus Christ. Many of us, Lord, have made the choice long ago maybe to be called your children to accept Jesus and his gift to us and yet we've bought into a devil's lie and we've reduced our Christianity to just another element of a way that we build a life we've locked you out of it in everything and in every way and so give us the grace to confess that and take us to place that you've designed for us. Move in our hearts. Change lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.